0: All right, so, uh, on your outline, as I kind of mentioned Wednesday to kind of hint, this is going to be a post-camp kind of a recap. The introduction will explain a little bit why. Uh, but the title of today, today's message is A Time to Kill, and it's taken straight from Ecclesiastes 3.3. The Bible says that there's a time for everything. And specifically in that verse, there is a time to kill. And this past week, we heard a lot about the giants that are in our lives. We all have different giants. We all have different things and hurdles we've got to overcome in our lives. And when you capture those giants, when you recognize what those giants are, it's time to slay them. It's time to kill them. We talked about different giants being like a fear of evangelism. Maybe that's your giant. Well, hey, guess what? You have an opportunity this afternoon to come on out and help kill that giant. So it's not too late for you to join if that's the case. Come on out. Some of you have a giant of just being daily in the Word of God. Others, maybe it's your social status or your self-image, your self-esteem. There's all these giants we talked about. I want you guys to keep in mind what your giant was that you wrote down on your paper. Keep that in mind for this lesson. On the introduction, we have the mindset and mission of a warrior. We've identified the giants in our life and know what is needed to please him who hath chosen us to be soldiers. Those are the four messages right there from this past weekend. Now it's time to slay. Now it's time to kill. Now is when we go head to head with our giants and kill them by faith. Today, we will take a more in-depth look on how to practically take over our land from the giants besetting them as we once again go to the Old Testament as our picture book on sanctification sanctification is key what does it mean Noah be set, apart from the world God. set apart from the world and set apart unto God and the Old Testament is just chalk full of pictures of this see in letter a on your outline We have God's command going into the land. When the nation of Israel was delivered out of bondage, when they were rescued and saved from themselves, saved from an eternity, being enslaved to a cruel taskmaster in Exodus, they were given a command. Go into the promised land. Go into the land that I have given you. But see, when they went there, what did they find was occupying that land? Giants. Giants. So very simply put on your outline, the nation of Israel was to completely wipe out their enemies from occupying their land. Look with me in chapter 7, verse 1 of Deuteronomy. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. You see, there's a reason why God listed them. Because just as there are many nations going against the nation of Israel, there's many occupants and many giants that are in your land that you have to kill. And some of those giants and some of those things are bigger and stronger and mightier than you. It's important to know that. That's why I hope you never get bored of how many times God lists those things as a constant reminder of know your enemy. Know what it is that is your weakness. Verse 2. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee... Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Why? Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. This is sanctification. This is, there's a New Testament passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that is talking all about that. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath you with light and darkness? If you're light, what fellowship hath you with darkness? You've got to watch this. Verse 5, but thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art in what? Holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. First Peter says, A peculiar people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. Turn over to chapter 20. Look with me in verse 16. But of the cities of these people, the enemies, your giants, the the sins or the things that you struggle with that are keeping you from fully entering into your land, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive what? Mm -hmm. Nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So should ye sin against the Lord your God. In other words, whatever God spoke to you about this week at camp, whatever God told you was your giant and you need to go and kill it by faith in order to please him that hath chosen you to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you don't do it, what is that called? sin says it right there when thou shalt besiege a city along actually we're going to stop there because i'm going to mention that in a little bit you see they were to completely wipe out any and all enemies from occupying their land any and all giants wipe them out spare nothing alive leave no room for that giant to be resurrected And the second bullet point, just as there were various nations they were supposed to kill, we as believers are to mortify the different types of sin in our lives. Galatians 5 goes through a list of all of the works of the flesh, of all the different kinds of struggles and sins we have. And Colossians 3 says we are to mortify it, to kill it. Romans chapter 8 also mentions the word mortify. It means to utterly destroy. It means to eradicate to leave nothing alive, to leave no semblance of that giant in your life. That is what we're supposed to do. And so when I came up with this post-camp message, I wanted it to be just another practical step. Again, we talked about this last week, and we talked about what those giants were, but how can you guys, how can we all practically go about to destroy that in our life? Whatever it is, how do we practically kill it by faith? Letter B. That's what this is all about, how we eradicate the enemy. Turn over to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. God lets you know a little something about this. Some giants in your guys' life, you're able to, boom, wipe out with one toss of a stone. But he also says this, verse 27, God is saying, I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittite from before thee. But note verses 29 and 30. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee by little and little. I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. You know what God's telling us here? The first bullet point under letter B. You have to understand that this process of sanctification, that that this, this whole thing of killing your giants and getting rid of those that are occupying your land, understand that it is a process that is going to take time. It's going to take time to get rid of the giants in your life. It's going to take time to get rid of those little things that beset you, that are in your land, that are preventing you from being a good soldier. It'll take time. I mean, I remember when I started walking with God, there were some things that God just, boom, instantaneously cleaned up in my life. Like for me, for example, it was cussing. I had a foul mouth when I wasn't walking with God. And then, boom, instantaneously, no struggle with that afterwards. Some giants, yeah, you're able with just one toss of a stone and you kill it like that. Others, God takes it little by little. And you know the reason why? It's to keep you humble and dependent upon him. Because if everything was taken care of, boom, just like that, we would have no need for him. And it'd be very, very easy for us to get high and heady-minded. The entire book of Judges is all about that, as we'll soon see. But little by little, some of these things in your life are going to take time. The problem with you and I is we like things done quickly. We want things done right away. And it's difficult for us to keep going in the fight and not be weary and well-doing as we see things taking a little bit longer to do. We can't do that. We can't be weary. I love this verse in... Actually, why don't you guys just go ahead and turn over to Galatians chapter 5? All right, who wants to read verse 24? (laughs) Someone with a little bit more enthusiasm. Who wants to read verse 24? They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts thereof. Somebody tell me what that means. Anyone? Dying to self. Dying to self. You see, when you were saved, the Bible says that you became crucified with Christ. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 that we have been crucified unto this world. But you see, every single day, as a part of your sanctification process, you and I need to crucify our flesh. That means die to self daily, like Carlin said, and lay down our lives. Now, here's the thing with a verse like that. When it comes to crucifixion, it should cause you, as a word picture, to think. You realize how slow of a death it was? You didn't die instantaneously. It was slow. It was a process. Not only that, it was one of the most painful ways a human being could be executed. Painful, because you're literally suffocating to death, but not suffocating like you know someone's choking you out or you're drowning, which is relatively quick. No, you're on this sucker for hours. You would literally have to, even though you have nails in your feet, you would literally have to push yourself up just to get a breath of air. Keep in mind, you have about a nine inch stake going through both of your feet. You have to push yourself up to get some air, and then you sink back down because the pain was just too much. Slow, painful process of death. And you know what else it was? Humiliating. We don't really mention this or talk about this a lot. But you know that in all four Gospels, it was actually a prophecy, but in all four Gospels, what they said happened to Christ when he was on the cross? They parted his garments. We don't have to think about that because we have so many paintings from Roman Catholics and so many picture books and so many movies that obviously you can't show that. But your Lord and Savior was completely vulnerable and open on that cross for everyone to see. You learn something about what it means to die to self here. It's a slow process. It's a painful process. And sometimes it means you having to get vulnerable And open that's what sanctification is and that's how sometimes some of the enemies we have to kill it takes time it's a process and it's painful and it might cause you to get vulnerable but man is it so good it's so worth it you see in the second sub point there you have to know that this fight is a lifelong battle It's a lifelong battle. Up here on the screen. Oh, wait, that's over here. Joshua eleven eighteen 18 says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. <coughs> a long time, Joshua, Joshua, Jesus, made war with all those kings. Not only that, this is one of my favorite verses. Now, Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years. That had to make Joshua feel great, by the way, especially when he already knew that about himself, to have God say that. And if you read Joshua chapters 1 to 12, he's just whipping tail left and right, getting rid of all of the occupants of the land, all of the enemies. And note what God says to him here. There remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. The second half of your point on your outline there, Not only is it a lifelong battle, but you know what you learn through this? You cut the head off one giant, and four more are going to pop up in its place. 1 Samuel 17, 51. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine, Goliath the giant, took his sword, drew it out of the sheath thereof, and slew him, and cut off his head therewith. Hands down, Wyatt and Ryder's favorite thing to reenact about David and Goliath. I've had my head cut off 30 times. (laughs) But look, you guys remember how many stones David grabbed? Five total. 2 Samuel 21 says, These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Maybe he grabbed five stones because, hey, what if I miss? Maybe he grabbed five stones because he knew if he killed one, four more were coming after him. You get rid of the giant that you wrote down on your sheet this past weekend, there's going to be more coming your way. Sanctification is a lifelong battle. It doesn't just end with winter camp. Because my fear is, just like any camp, and thankfully we haven't really had it this past summer camp, but there's a, a momentum building from camp and then when we took care of the things we need to take care of and then we just kind of plateau and maybe dip a little bit and then we're like, man, I can't wait for summer camp to come. I just need another pick me up. That's not how the game was supposed to be played, so to speak. It is a lifelong battle. Again, mindset is everything. That was message one. You get this mind in you. It'll help you for when. Why am I struggling with this? Yeah, because you took care of one thing from winter camp, now something else is coming after you. Be prepared. It's a lifelong battle. You got to watch for these things. Turn over to Judges chapter 1. I thought this was kind of unique. I never really saw this before. In other words, don't let your guard down. Prepare for whatever the next sin is that, that Satan's going to throw your way. Prepare for whatever the next trial it is that Satan's going to throw your way. Prepare for whatever the next illness is that Satan might throw your way. Cut the head off one giant, four more are going to sprout up. Watch. Be careful. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Not much is mentioned about chariots of iron in Scripture, but if you look throughout Scripture, specifically in the book of Judges, chariots of iron, apparently from this verse, are like impossible, almost close to impossible for a group of Israelites, a group of just poor farmers, so to speak, nomads, to conquer an enemy with. In other words, on your outline there, Some enemies won't go easily. Some giants in your life, it may take a little bit more time than usual to kill and to eradicate. But you know what you need to do? Turn over to chapter 4. You'll find the answer. You need to be persistent in calling on God. Look at verse 2. Again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so God sold him into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harashef of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel, what? Cried unto the Lord. Why? For he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of what? Yeah, in other words, Satan wasn't going to let these guys go easily. He wasn't going to let these guys go without a fight. Whatever the giant is in your light, be prepared for a fight. Maybe for the fight of your life. Because Satan's not going to let his grip go easily. You've got to be careful. You've got to watch and you've got to be persistent in calling on God. And it says, In 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. 20 years it took them calling on God. 20 years it took them. Oh, how old are you guys? Almost 20 years. 20 years of calling on God. Jump down to verse 13 and Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron and all the people that were with him from Harisheth of the Gentiles into the river of Kishbon down to 16. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harisheth of the Gentiles and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword and there was not a man left. Some enemies won't go easily, but you be persistent in calling upon God and God will conquer them. Maybe some of you guys came back from winter camp and already this week you're like, man, it's not that easy getting rid of that giant in my life. Be of good cheer. Be persistent. (laughs) Because you see, the goal of the enemy is to get you to be so worn out and so run down from the fight that you just quit. And you just relegate it to, man, there's just some things I'm just always going to struggle with for the rest of my life. Don't do that. Do you or do you not serve the God of the impossible? I know you guys know what the answer is supposed to be. In your heart of hearts, you really have to ask yourself, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that? If you want victory, you'll do what's necessary to get it. Don't look at that sin as a chariot of iron that it's just impossible to get rid of. It's just impossible to do anything with. Uh Uh-uh. You see, on the second bullet point of how we eradicate the enemy, one of the strategies God implements in the Old Testament to conquer an enemy was to place it under siege. Now, John Mark talked a little bit about this, at what an enemy does when they want to place an enemy under siege is that they surround it and they cut off, specifically, any and all supplies. So it causes the enemy or the person that they're besieging to starve. God mentions this. You can check those passages out later. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we were just there. God mentions this as far as what the Israelites were supposed to do to their enemy. To surround them and cut off any supplies of getting in. So that eventually the people would starve to death. But he also warns them in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. That if they're not walking with God. God will do this to them. Where he will send enemies of the Israelites. To besiege round about them and cut off their food supply, so that they starve to death. Only in Deuteronomy 28 something else happens. They start turning on each other. Because when you're desperate for food, <coughs> because the food supply has been cut off, you'll start turning on each other. And in chapter 28, they started turning on each other to the point of cannibalism. Got to be careful with that. So there's a strategy. Turn over to Joshua chapter 10. We're going to see this strategy here of how you place the enemies in your life under siege. And it's real simple contain, weaken, destroy. Contain, weaken, destroy these three strategies. Joshua chapter 10, I should probably turn there myself. Look with me in verse 16. But these five kings for context, they're five kings of Israel. Put down your struggles. Put down your giants. Self-image, self-esteem, fear of evangelism. Weights that easily beset you, the sin that easily besets you, whatever. These five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Mekedah. And it was told Joshua saying, the five kings are found hid in a cave at Mekedah. And Joshua said, roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep them. You know what you do in the first bullet point? contain the sin that easily besets you by inhibiting its ability to have influence over you. What does that mean? In other words, get away from it. Cut it off. Cut off the supply chain. Make sure that those five kings in your life have no influence or sway in your life. You have to cut off any ability that it has in order to do so. Romans 13, 14 says, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Provision. There's three ways you can look at this. Break it out as a compound word. Provision. Things that are for the lust of the eyes. Just like Eve. She saw that fruit and she saw that she wanted it with her eyes. For your vision for the lust of your eyes second way you can look at it provisions provisions is another word for food source hey go out to the store they used to say in the old timey days go out to the store and get provisions It's supplies necessary to help survive like a blizzard or something like that It's supplies its food source go get supplies and another way you can look at it too is provision it's very similar to provide provisions are provided. In other words, don't provide for your flesh. Cut it off and starve that sucker. Practically speaking, whatever it is you're struggling with it, whatever your giant is, whatever is feeding that thought, if it's self-image and self-esteem, are you on social media and you're watching all these reels about what a woman should look like or what a guy should look like and that's feeding this kind of self negative image in your mind then cut it off get rid of it throw it in a cave roll a stone over it contain it next look at verse 19 and stay ye not but pursue after your enemies and smite the hindmost of them In other words, yeah, you got the kings contained, but now there's their minions. There's there's little things, those little sins that are also your enemy. Now that you got the big thing contained, go after the little ones. Suffer them not to enter into your cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. Verse 20, And it came to pass that when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. Next thing you have to do, a second bullet point, weaken that sin's hold on your life by going after the smaller struggles that fuel your major sin. In other words, deal biblically with your thought life. Cut off the main source of the problem. Cut it off. Contain it. And then, when you contain that, you need to start going deeper and looking at, okay, Why is it that I struggle with this giant? What's the real reason why I struggle with this giant? One of the best examples, I have it like three times on your outline. It's Colossians 3.5, and I love this. Because Colossians 3.5, he tells you about what you're to mortify in your flesh. And the first thing he talks about is, is fornication. We've talked about this before, that fornication, it's the fruit of the sin. But as you go throughout the rest of the verse, he gets down to the bottom of it where he says and mortify covetousness which is idolatry that's the root of the sin see it, it it's all goes back to and this is like this for any sin if it's self-image self-esteem confidence being bold to share your faith you can do this with whatever those are the giants but what's the thought process behind it what's the heart motive behind it In Colossians 3, 5, it's really, it's covetousness. It's, I want to be in charge of what I want, and I want what I want. Not what you want, God. When we're just honest to to say what our sin is, what our giant is, and we're honest to call it what it is, God will help you with that. So, you have to, when you contain the sin, next you have to go and weaken it by getting control of the thought life. That's why 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Look what verse 5 says. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. See, here's the thing. To go back earlier, the the social media or or devices or just self-image, those are the giants, those are the big things but what's going on underneath the surface? Remember the iceberg? I can't even remember when I said that. Was that winter? I don't know. Iceberg. Here's what we see, but here's beneath the surface. We focus too much on the giants. We focus too much on the big picture things, and we don't focus enough on the thought life that fuels those giants. Contain Cut off the food supply and then go and weaken the little things inside that are keeping that giant alive. That are keeping those kings, those enemies alive in our lives. We have to go after them and weaken them just as Joshua commanded his men to do. And lastly, look at verse 21. And all the people returned to the camp of Joshua to Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave. And bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so. And brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. He names them by names. You have to know what your enemies are. You have to call them out specifically. That's why they're in your Bible as such. Verse 24. It came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel. And said unto the captains of the men of war. This is you. Which went with him. Come near. Put your feet upon the necks of those kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. Not just the giant you're facing right now, but each and every single one of them that show up afterwards. Put your feet on their necks. You get controlled, not the other way around. And afterward, verse 26, Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. Somebody remind me, what does the number five mean in the Bible? Death. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded that they took them off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day. I included verse 27. They were dead in verse 26. I included verse 27 because Joshua did everything and the people did everything to make sure they stayed dead to make sure they stayed where they put them and that they had no chance of coming back and bothering the people ever again. When you follow this process, contain, weaken, destroy, you will make sure that those enemies never get a foothold in your life again. Practically speaking, destroy. I guess your third bullet point there, what we just saw, Destroy your sin once and for all by enlisting the help of fellow brothers and sisters in arms. Do you see that? How they were all together and they all put their feet upon the necks of their enemies. Do you see that? They needed each other. But keep in mind, who was the one really doing the killing? It's Joshua. Joshua slew him. Joshua, Jesus. As Pastor Tom's mentioned on Sunday mornings, Joshua's name translated means Jesus. How does that practically apply to you and I? 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. Look at how this verse ends. With them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He indicates here, you can't flee youthful lusts on your own. You can't follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace on your own. We need each other. We need our brothers and sisters in arms just like these guys needed each other to help put the boot upon the necks of our giants and our enemies. Contain, weaken, destroy. Mark Joshua 10 down if you need to be reminded of this and study it out later for yourself. And last, letter C. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25. I hope this is helping you practically John Mark nailed it. With we, we, we kill our giants by faith. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need the sword of the Lord. We need the word of God. How do we practically look at some Old Testament pictures to be more set apart from the world and be more set apart unto God? Hope this is helping you. Letter C. Beware the silent enemy. Look with me in chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. God says, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. Stop right there. Anybody know what he's referencing? There was something that happened. I have it on your study sheet there, Exodus 17. Nation of Israel is fighting against Amalek and the Amalekites. Amalekites came against the nation of Israel. And so how did Moses deal with it? Staff in the air. Remember that story? As Moses held his hands up as a sign of prayer, as a picture of prayer, and he had Joshua on either side, and and I think it was Caleb, right? Joshua and Caleb? Anybody know? I didn't look it up. I think it was Aaron. You're right. Yeah, because it was Aaron. It was Aaron, I think Joshua on either side of him, holding his arms up. And as long as his arms were up, Israel won. But it was Amalek they were fighting against. It was the Amalekites. He says, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. Verse 18, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were, don't miss this, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary and he feared not God. First bullet point under that, one of the most grievous enemies of Israel, the Amalekites, would attack Israel when they were tired and weak just like your flesh all of these kings all of these people we looked at it's a picture of the flesh all of these giants that we look at whatever it is if it's fear if it's something just internally a thought that you have of yourself or if it's any kind of sin, all of these giants are are really outflowings of the flesh to some way or another. All of these Old Testament Israelites, or not Israelites, well in some cases, all of these Old Testament enemies of God, they're a picture of the flesh. Those of you guys who are reading a book in the Old Testament right now, just pay attention to any enemy of Israel and you'll get a good insight as to what your flesh can be like. Amalek, very, very sneaky, very silent, very subtle. He attacked... When Israel was weak and tired. Yeah, I've been open before with you guys, you know, uh, like any guy, I struggled with lust a lot when I was in high school and even in the college career singles. And you know when I was my weakest to give into that lust? When I was weak and tired. I don't care what the sin is. You're going to struggle when you're weak and tired. Your flesh is going to attack right when you are at your weakest and lowest. That's exactly what the enemy does. That is exactly what our stinking flesh does. We have to watch that. But look at verse 19. Look what God says. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. I've not seen God be that specific and that passionate. I know I read that like that because I, I can't read it like that when I read it with just my eyes. Blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. That's how I hear God speaking to Israel on this. I've not read him say that about any of those. We saw it earlier. Hey, take out the Hivites, the Hittites, the Canaanites. The He didn't say anything about that. Like Thou shalt not forget it. But he does with Amalek. <laughs> Something of interest here. Verse 19 that we just read. hold on, let me get the subpoint first. Keep you on the ledge there. He would attack Israel in the flesh as weak and tired subpoint. Just as Israel was commanded to leave no trace of their existence, we are commanded to leave nothing alive in our flesh. Romans 7 to 18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Dwelleth no good thing. Go ahead and add 8.13 on your study sheet. He says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, that's the second time the word mortify shows up in the Bible. First is Colossians, well, second is Colossians 3.5. First is Romans 8.13. Through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live execute with extreme prejudice there's a, um, i I've studied history uh, and I, I study uh, you know, military history too there's a, a phrase that's used in our military and arms forces today it's called violence of action and I think in the springtime we might do a, a guy's bible study on uh, the armor of God it's something that I prepared years ago and I got to tweak it and maybe make it more for I did it for adults but I'll probably tweak it and make it more for senior high guys. But I, I, I talk about this in that study, violence of action. Violence of action is a current military term that basically means whenever our soldiers are under attack, they are to lay down as much extreme firepower as possible to completely obliterate their enemy. It's not like a, hey, let's conserve the ammo, let's, let's make sure that every shot counts. Yeah, every shot counts, but it is a all-guns firing. We are going to not stop until that enemy is completely eradicated in other words it's fellas ladies we're in the fight for our lives here you lay down everything you have you give it your all because we might not make it out of this if we don't you lay down everything right now because we might not be making it out of this one so you fight with everything you have it's called violence of action it's making sure that the violence your enemy has is not bigger or greater than the violence you have to conquer That's the same mindset we have to have right here with these verses. That's the same mindset we have to have with these giants and the four more that come after it. Execute with extreme prejudice. Go after it. Now, I found it very interesting as I was studying this this week. Verse 19 is the last time that Amalek or the Amalekites show up until the book of Judges. I couldn't find anything this week as to the reason why that is. In other words, here's the thing. The book of Deuteronomy is kind of like a hype video. You guys know what hype videos are? Yeah. Whenever you're like the Buckeyes or your favorite team, they're like just going on like, let's go, we're going to win. That's essentially what Deuteronomy is. He's like, hey, you know, it's basically a retelling of Leviticus. It's basically the retelling, only it's like, hey guys, now that you guys get it, now that we've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, and we're ready now to go into the land, now it's time to go. It's time to get pumped up, we got some work to do. And Deuteronomy is essentially a hype video for Joshua, because that's the next book of your Bible. Joshua, where he goes in and starts conquering enemies left and right. And then after the book of Joshua, you have the book of Judges, where Joshua's dead. And there's no king in Israel, and every man does that which is right in his own eyes. But here's the thing, though. Amalek doesn't show up once in all the book of Joshua. The Amalekites don't show up at all in the book of Joshua. I, for the life of me, could not find out the reason why. I don't know if the Amalekites heard that Joshua and the Israelites were coming, so they hightailed it out of the land, and they just waited to attack and strike. No clue. But here's what I did come up with, because the Bible's kind of silent on it. Last bullet point, when Joshua, which again means Jesus, when Joshua is ruling and reigning in your land, Amalek is silent. It reminds me of just James chapter 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in your life and you develop strong habits that you're resisting and those five kings aren't coming back to life into your your fray because you have a stone rolled over and they're dead and gone. You submit yourself to God and you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. I can't help but wonder that's the reason why Amalek and the Amalekites don't show up once in the book of Joshua when Joshua is just kicking tail left and right, getting rid of all the enemies. But then, in Judges chapter 3, verse 13, when Joshua is gone and there is no king in Israel and every man does that which is right in his own eyes, which shows up twice in the book of Judges. That's the theme for the entire book of Judges. Then Amalek shows back up. They forgot it. I'm not going to go as far to say that maybe Joshua should have pursued farther and killed him. I don't know. This is where I land. Joshua was in control. Joshua was in charge. Amalek wasn't around. Jesus Christ is in control and in charge of your life. You resist the devil, he's going to flee from you. However, back on your outline, when you push Joshua off the throne, Jesus, and do that which is right in your own eyes, don't be surprised when Amalek rears his ugly head. You know what the most infamous story of the Malachites are? It's 1 Samuel 15, when Saul is given a command by Samuel to go in and Utterly wipe out the Amalekites. Man, woman, boy, girl, even the livestock. Kill them all. Wipe it out. Violence of action. Execute with extreme prejudice. And here's the thing. And I'm going to say it like this, even though some of you guys have heard the story before. I'm going to say it like this because this helps me. And I hope it helps you. Samuel obeyed. Or sorry. Saul obeyed. He did kill most of the men. He did kill a lot of things. He did kill. He went in and slaughtered a lot. And he obeyed. He obeyed. But he kept the king alive. He kept the women alive, surely. Kept others th- other things alive, too. He kept some of the livestock alive because, hey, we need it for a sacrifice. We need this. For God. We need this for good. That's why that's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm doing things on my own. Make no mistake about it. He obeyed. But he didn't obey completely. That's why the last point on your outline. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. Fear God. And cleanse the land. I just came across First Kings chapter two, verses thirty-six to forty-six recently. I was like, wow, what a passage about the fear of God. There's a man named Shimmy. Shimmy, Shimmy, Coco. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> Anywho, don't look that song up. Um, so there's a man named Shimmy who the king, Solomon, told him. Yeah, it was. I don't think it was Solomon yet. He was. David. Anyways, the king told him, hey, stay where you are. Do not leave where you are. Stay where God has you. If you leave where God has you, you're going to die. Shimmy does it. For a time, maybe a couple weeks since winter camp had passed. And then he decides something happened to him. And he was wronged. He actually was wronged. And he decides, I'm going to go take matters in my own hands. He was going to take vengeance. And he was going to go correct and rectify a thing. But he disobeyed where God told him to be. And as a result, when he came back, the king was like, I I told you what was going to happen. And he actually killed the guy. He killed Shimmy Because he didn't obey. And he didn't stay where God had him he tried taking matters into his own hands instead of relying upon the words of the king talk about an analogy for fearing God we need to fear God and again a New Testament parallel for that as we end 2 Corinthians 7 1 having therefore these promises dearly beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Psalm 19 says that, you know, hey, there's, there's presumptuous sins and there's secret faults. There's sins that we do, we know we're doing, there's secret faults that sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. Just like there's filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. I guess if you could put it this way, big sins and little sins. Or, to go along with what we're looking at with contain, weaken, and destroy, there's, there's the five kings that you got to contain, but then there's the thought life that fuels those five kings. Flesh and spirit, kill them all. When you do this, you will perfect holiness in the fear of God. And it brings us full circle to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God called us to be a holy, sanctified people. We have enemies, we have giants, all of us do. Listen, all of us do. We have giants, and they need to be destroyed. Utterly. These are some practical tips that I hope help all of us. Because we're all in this together. So let's all collectively put our boots on their throats And let's have it that way for the first time in many of our lives instead of the other way around. Because there's big things coming up. There's big things coming up this year. We have an evangelistic service this Wednesday night. I'm hoping you guys don't have another snow day so you can actually get to inviting people face-to-face. You guys can do it digitally, but face-to-face, there's something different about it. Be back here this Wednesday with a guest in hand. Do anything possible. Do whatever it takes to bring someone here so they can hear the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you very much for, again, uh, this Old Testament book, this Old Testament, these Old Testament stories. Thank you so very much for the pictures that it presents for us and how we can live in the New Testament. Lord, I pray we would actually practice this, that we would contain, weaken, and destroy our enemies and to do all that it takes to inhibit the ability that it influences over us, to go after the, the, the smaller things, that the thought life that fuels those bigger things, and to enlist our fellow brothers and sisters to help us kill it for once and for all because there's four more coming. And we just got to do the exact same process over again. It's a lifelong process. We love you. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (music)